Anyone here remember the story of Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus was a, a wee little man. Do you remember the story of Jesus inviting himself to the home of Zacchaeus? To everyone's amazement, Jesus headed there with the gangster of the Jericho tax office who's trying to keep up with his short legs. And sometime during their visit, probably after a lot of discussion, prayer, meditation, this little man would come out and declare this for all of Jericho to hear. Look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay it back Four times the amount. This is outrageous. This is an outrageous transformation. For starters, Zacchaeus gives away 50% of his money to the poor, and from there, the remaining 50%, he pledged to make restitution of four times the amount that he had extorted from people during his time as a tax collector. It is not hard to imagine that Zacchaeus had cheated lots and lots and lots of people. So this would come at great cost to him. This story is found in Luke 19. And just before Luke 19 comes Luke. You're smart. You're Bible people. It's good. Jesus met with a rich young ruler. And the story of Zacchaeus comes right after in contrast. Zacchaeus fulfills the command that Jesus gave to the rich young ruler that caused him so much grief, which was sell all you have and give it to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. You see, in this contrast, Zacchaeus is the picture of what Jesus called walking through the eye of a needle. And his story lives for our benefit today. Friends, we must listen to the warnings of the Bible. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered from the faith, and listen to this language, and have pierced themselves with many pangs. Pretty direct. But praise God, by this amazing grace, this little man, Zacchaeus, had become a giant of grace. Acceptance by God had given the tax collector what he had vainly pursued his whole life in the corrupt hoarding of money. He had found true belonging, wonderful satisfaction. He went into Jesus a slave to the desire to take and he left overcome by the hunger to give and to share. Something remarkable and outrageous and life-changing transformation happened to Zacchaeus inside that house with Jesus. And we are not left in the dark as to what happened. Jesus declares to the crowd in Jericho, Today, salvation has come to this house because he also is a son of Abraham because the Son of Man came to seek and to save those who are lost. 
The saving joy of salvation is now in Zacchaeus' soul. He's a new man. This is an important theological point in the Gospel of Luke because Luke uh, 19 verse 10 is the theme verse of Luke's Gospel. Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. So we learn right here that true salvation will change our orientation to money. If salvation has not released our tight hold on money to the extent that we have become generous, giving people, it is possible that we are not citizens of God's kingdom at all. Jesus said, take care and be on guard against all covetousness because your life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. It is very good that it is not required of me to have mastered this truth to declare it to you. I'm not good at this. But this is the word of God for all of us. For me. So we get to 2 Corinthians. And Paul uses the same spiritual point to bring instructions to the Corinthians. And it might seem like a sudden change of topic for Paul when he brings up this delayed offering, this gift of grace that he references. But Paul is using it as an opportunity for spiritual growth for the church in Corinth. At the very end of 1 Corinthians chapter 16, let me remind you that they began a collection for the poor in Jerusalem. Church in Jerusalem, I know this is kind of, I labored when I first began studying this passage, and I'm going to do my best to bring you up to speed with me quickly, because there's the church in Corinth, there's the churches in Macedonia, there's the church in Jerusalem, and the church in Jerusalem is destitute and poor, and they are taking up money to try to support those believers. But all of that good intentions and work and initiative had been derailed, partly because of the friction between Paul and the Corinthians. But now, with the return of Titus and the good news of the Corinthians' repentance that Pastor Brian shared with us last week in chapter 7, Paul feels it's right to bring the issue up now. There's a great opportunity for them to contribute generously to the poverty-stricken church in Jerusalem. And again, why does Paul bring this up? The obvious answer is that their renewed giving would be evidence of their real faith. It would be a specific step they could take to grow spiritually. This is a great opportunity for the Corinthians. And just before we dive into the passage, let me just make an observation. It is really, really important that we understand that this section of Scripture is not about tithing or regular giving to the local church. The context here is about a one-time special gift to another church. This would be similar to our missionary relief offering that we have, perhaps. But listen closely. This passage is about God's grace as it relates to giving. It is intended to be extremely motivational behind Christian giving. What's the big idea this morning? If you're a note taker, here's a simple, simple sentence. Grace-filled lives come from generous hearts. Grace-filled lives come from generous hearts. Two thoughts this morning. We'll divide the passage into two sections, two points, verses 1 through 15. We should be giving money gracefully. 
And the second half, we should be using money properly. Well, you read that, I read it. We read the passage, it's 24 verses, it's long. But it actually is not that hard to understand once we dive into it. We should be giving money gracefully. Paul gives three illustrations for us to consider as he gives his teaching. There are three illustrations. The first is the example of the Macedonian churches. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. This is kind of like, um, I'm a basketball coach. My buddy Mike Maurice, a basketball coach. How many Sundays during basketball season do we find each other between church and say, I got to tell you something? <laughs> and, and, yeah, a lot. We got, we got a, just, just a, it's just a new experience. It's, it's something exciting. Something we're, you know, and, and that's what's happening here. Look at what Paul says. We want you to know something, brothers. I, I, I got to tell you something. To us, this is archaic. An offering from this church to that church. But, you know, it, it just seems so foreign. But stay in the text. You'll see how beautiful this is. Here's the story. First two verses. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. What is the grace of God? In our passage, the grace of God that Paul's referring to is the grace of giving. Of opening your wallet and sharing. Paul's referring to the generous tendency to share with others that the Macedonian church had developed. This grace is motivated by the truth of the gospel. We've seen that in previous passages. This is the ministry of Christ's reconciliation. The riches of God's grace been poured out on them, and now they in turn want to pour out what they have on others. The grace of giving is what this passage is all about. The word grace occurs eight times in the two chapters, eight and nine, and it occurs five times in the first nine verses. Verse one, the grace. Verse four, the favor. You might not see it there, but the word favor is the same word grace. Verse six, the act of grace. Verse seven, the act of grace. Verse nine, the grace. Paul's teaching here is an instruction on grace from beginning to end. Now, what about the churches in Macedonia does he want us to know? We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. There should be some irony hitting you there. How in affliction do you have joy? How in poverty do you have generosity? Do you see the ironies? These are things for us to ask questions about. So let's consider a few characteristics about the example of the Macedonians. The first example, I want you to know about these people. Number one, they were poor. Who are the Macedonian churches? Well, it's Philippi. It's northern Greece. It's Thessalonica. It's Berea. They were at the bottom. They were dirt poor. For most of us, it's probably a major stretch to imagine poverty in an ancient setting. I think I consider myself poor if I have to think about whether or not I can take my family out to Mexican or not. A pun I found this week, uh, American Express, the Macedonians always left home without it. They had no cars, no special clothes. They didn't go to Fort Walton Beach for vacation. They didn't have iPhones. 
the ironies here, as I said, are rich. All through 2 Corinthians, weakness and strength, death and life. They're not mutually exclusive, but they are realities laid together in the lives of those who are united to the crucified and risen Jesus. Afflicted but not crushed. Perplexed but not despairing. Persecuted but not forsaken. Struck down but not destroyed. So we do not lose heart. Not only were they poor, but they were afflicted. They were in a, quote, severe test of affliction, verse 2. The literal idea here is that they were being, listen to this, crushed by life. Crushed by their daily life. The surrounding culture is squeezing them harder and harder, primarily because of their devotion to Jesus. They were under real persecution. They were poor. They were picked on. The grinding poverty, the crushing tribulation just made life so hard they were afflicted by american standards we'd we'd probably call it impossible and yet they are described as generous out of their difficult situation they did what most of us would consider impossible and what i would never consider doing Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. This is an unbelievably outrageous statement. In a parched existence, dehydrated little churches overflowed with the joy of giving. The riches that welled over to others was not the small amount that they could give, but their joy in what God had done for them. This is the grace of giving. There's no other way to explain it. And Paul expounds this thought, listen in verse 3 and 4, for they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means. What does that even mean? Pastor Brian joked in our Thursday morning sermon prep team meeting, did they take out a loan to give? How do you give beyond your means? of their own free will, begging us earnestly for the favor, for the grace of taking part in the relief of the saints. They gave beyond or in spite of their ability. And the idea here is that Paul, seeing their extreme poverty, was hesitant to take their gifts because he knew, as we would think, that this would actually deepen their already desperate situation. But they wouldn't be denied. That is the title of my sermon this morning. Paul, we're begging you. Can we please help? Can we help? Let us help. This is what grace giving looks like. It's not restricted by ability. It doesn't seek its own comfort. It is willing. It sees giving as a privilege. It is joyously enthusiastic. Not only are they poor, not only are they afflicted, not only are they generous, but they are surrendered. What is at the root of this kind of giving? What would make someone like this? The answer is given in verse 5. And this, not as we expected, it's one of the most beautiful verses in the entire passage, but they gave themselves first to the Lord. And then by the will of God to us. This is the most important thing we could know about the Macedonians. Grace first, foremost, rooted in our response to God. It's very basic. When we know and remember that our lives are not our own, 
then we will not think our possessions are our own either. We will not think our money belongs to us. It is very easy to give up part when you've already given away all. They are surrendered. It won't do any good to give our possessions to God unless we have given ourselves first. They gave themselves first to the Lord. I read a quote by Kent Hughes this, uh, in my preparation that was so helpful. Hear this. In fact, such giving will actually do us harm. The reasons are apparent. We'll be tempted to imagine that giving of our substance is enough and that somehow this will make God pleased with us. External giving builds religious pride. Giving things instead of ourselves can easily become our religion so that we never turn to Christ for salvation. It needs to be said that if you have not given your life to Christ, don't give your money. God doesn't need your money. Even more, He doesn't want you to, to deceive yourself. The story about the Macedonians is told by Paul about believers for believers to instruct true believers, not unbelievers. What does this mean? Well, Paul doesn't leave us in the dark. Verses 6 and 7, he gives us more instructions. So accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, he should complete among you this act of grace, the giving, the offering. But as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and all earnestness and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Earlier, Paul had encouraged Titus to try to bring the Corinthians to maturity in this area of giving. The Corinthians were a gifted church, right? We learned that in 1 Corinthians. Many had faith and speech and knowledge and earnestness and love, but they did not excel in this act of giving, this grace giving. Despite all their good qualities, Paul wanted them to continue growing. Friends, this is hard for me to say. There is no way to grow spiritually and to grow to spiritual maturity without committing your finances to the Lord. It is possible for Jesus to have our money and not our hearts. But he cannot have our hearts without our money. Money is just absolutely intertwined with the soul. Statistics say that the average American spends 50% of their time thinking about money in one way or another. Usually either how to get it or how they should spend it. It's also true that our handling of money defines our affections, the things we truly treasure, how tightly we are bound to the world. Jesus made this point plainly. Where your treasure is, it's where your heart will be drawn to. I know in my own life, there are times when I am stuck in my spiritual growth because I will not give as the Bible teaches here. I'd have to say to you that I don't consider myself generous. I'm actually very frugal. What? Okay, I'm stingy. What? Okay, I'm a tightwad, so what? What about it? I am all too familiar with the reasons why someone can't give. It's too hard. You have so many obligations. You'll begin when you get a full-time job. You'll start when the car is paid for. You'll begin when the children are done with school. You'll begin when you can really give enough to matter. You'll begin with the next promotion. God's Word says to excel in this act of grace now 
No one can serve two masters. He will either hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. It's not the only example, and now he turns to an even better example. Was that Macedonian example pretty nice? He'd been speaking of their, their giving as a grace and the Corinthians giving as a grace, but now he turns to Jesus, verses 8 through 10, and he gives the example of Jesus. And in doing so, Paul dives deeply into the deepest reason for sacrificial giving to other believers, the gospel itself. Jesus was and is the greatest example and motivation for giving. And so Paul reaches to this high and lofty thought. Verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Jesus Christ, before the Incarnation, held the universe, every star in the palm of his hand. He emptied himself of those riches. He became one of us and died for us. This was his impoverishment. This was heaven's stewardship program. The genesis, the beginning of grace giving. This is the pattern for us. The Macedonians had not been motivated to give by trickery or fear her motivation. No, it was the wonderful heavenly example of grace giving that our Lord Jesus offered for us. This is the best and the highest motivation for giving. Nothing is more important. Paul doesn't simply reference the gospel generally. He talks about the gospel in terms of money. He does not say, you know the grace of the Lord Jesus, that he gave his life for you to forgive your sins, died on the cross and rose again. He links the gospel into the topic of finances. Jesus was rich in his pre-incarnate state, endlessly happy, uninterrupted, wonderful fellowship with the Father in the presence of the angels, but he became poor in an unspeakable act of compassionate condescension. Christ came to earth as a mortal man, just like us in every way except for sin. How poor was Jesus here on earth? Well, he had to have Peter go catch a fish with a miraculous coin in its mouth just so they could pay their taxes. We should all be so lucky, right? Jesus himself said, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but I have no place to lay my head. But it wasn't just earthly poverty that Paul was describing here. It was even deeper than that. C.S. Lewis wrote, if you want to get the hang of it, think how you would like to become a slug or a crab. It is one thing for a billionaire to suffer impoverishment at the hand of a bad fortune, at the hand of bad fortune. It is another for a billionaire to willingly embrace impoverishment for the sake of others. And it is another thing altogether for a billionaire to embrace impoverishment for his enemies. And Jesus' embrace of poverty was not just for show. The text says it was so that by you, by his poverty, you might become rich. Rich in grace. Rich in the Father's love. Rich in the security of an eternal inheritance. This is wealth next to which every financial fortune pales in comparison. Not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. Do you understand? 
Giving is a matter of grace from start to finish. Christ gave Himself for us. We receive His grace, and then we give ourselves to Him and to others in His name. This response to grace includes giving what we have. This is how the Macedonians gave out of their poverty with great generosity. And this is how we should give here in America out of our great wealth. Most of us are not in great poverty, but it is the same. And then there's a third. I'm, I, I'm at 11 minutes to go, so I may not touch every verse. There are 24. I'm going to have to turn the pages a little bit here. But there's one more example here. Paul gives a command in verses 11 and 12. He says, So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if readiness is there, acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he doesn't have. So he does acknowledge you can't give what you don't have. But in these verses, Paul describes the kind of giving he's looking for from them, and he drives the point home by referencing the miracle of manna from the Old Testament story of the Israelites wandering in the wilderness. Sorry for my pause here. I'm just trying to figure out which paragraph I can skip here. The final line here, Paul speaks of proportionate giving. Paul speaks of fair giving. People thinking about what they should give. But the last line here is what I want to focus on. It's so wonderful. Verse 15, as it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over and whoever gathered little had no lack. This is a quotation from Exodus chapter 16, verse 18. It underscores the effect of giving and describes how equality and fairness were maintained under the old covenant. Can you imagine being fed by God for 40 years? Just smile about that for a minute. Put your, let's get in the story for a second. What if God doesn't feed you in the wilderness? How do you feel at the end of the 40 years when God has fed you every day in the wilderness? What do you think of when you get to Mount Sinai and the Ten Commandments come down and Moses... Uh, I'm sorry, how do you feel when Jesus, uh, in the Lord's Prayer, teaches us to pray, give us this day our daily bread? Paul drives home the point that it is of personal benefit to be generous with your resources. Though told to gather only about two liters of manna, that's an omer, some of the Israelites gather more, some gather less. The curious thing about the account to which Paul draws attention to in our passage is that those who gather more actually don't have more, do they? And while those who gather less actually have enough, what happened to the manna if you gathered too much? It spoiled. The worms ate it. This is an Old Testament illustration of the principle throughout 2 Corinthians that the way up is the way down, and the way down is the way up. God does not measure the way that we measure. Hoarded manna goes bad. But those who trustingly gather only what is needed for that day, or twice as much on the Sabbath, have no lack. God provides 
for them. And by drawing the Corinthians' mind back to Exodus, Paul encourages them to act similarly, reminding them it is okay to be generous with your money. Oh, I need this reminder. Being generous with your money does not threaten your flourishing. On the contrary, being generous with your money secures your flourishing. This is God's economy. What's the point? Back in the Old Testament, fairness was maintained by the miracle of the manna. But now... In 2 Corinthians, having come through the cross in the gospel, fairness is maintained by our giving. The miracle now is what God did in the heart of Zacchaeus. The miracle now is what God does in your heart. And that is why Paul's message is not a sermon on the amount. (laughs) I told you, Kyle, I had some good ones in here. Paul leaves the amount of the gift up to the Corinthians because he's convinced that the quantity of their giving will match the quality of their changed heart. And that's why this is hard for me to preach. Friends, God thinks it's important that Christians do not keep to themselves what they receive from God. God provides for them, but this provision is there to also enable them to help one another. Grace-filled lives come from generous hearts second point here Ooh, six minutes we should be using money properly this can go a little faster there are also three examples in this section here there's the example of titus there's the example of the famous brother and there's the example of the earnest brother there's three men that paul is uh is that paul is uh commending here to the corinthians and i think we are going to Put three pages there, and I'll describe this for you. So what's happening is Paul, this Google thing that you can put your manuscript in, it says it's going to take me 33 minutes to do this, is a liar, obviously. (laughs) Um, three Three men here, Titus and the famous brother. The one who's, wouldn't you like to have this said about you? That you are famous for your preaching of the gospel? a great way to be uh, tombstoned and then the brother who's famous for being earnest just so sincere about everybody else's faith paul goes through here and you can read it there's a lot of principles here about handling money and paul doesn't want any accusations thrown at him that he's mishandling a large gift you get this multiple churches pulling together funds that are going to be taken to jerusalem aren't you just a little tired of all of the financial scandal in america i am there are principles that can help us here and unfortunately i'm going to run out of time titus is so concerned for the care of this church the famous brother a lot of people think it's luke there's a little bit of uh argument for that but nobody really knows for sure the corinthians knew paul felt it was so easy not to name him and the earnest brother grace-filled lives come from generous hearts grace-filled lives come from generous hearts 
Having heard all of this, we are brought to reflect on our own hearts. Do we yield obediently in our finances? Are we aware that everything we have is actually more deeply his than ours? Have we surrendered to him? Have we fallen into his arms and left behind our silly attempts to give God partial obedience to make ourselves feel better about what we've done to appease our conscience? Have we not realized that grace-filled hearts, grace-filled lives come from full surrender? Now you're probably weary like I am of the prosperity gospel gimmicks. Forgiving like give and God will give to you. Misusing Malachi as is so often done by modern preachers. Uh, one preacher sent out an appeal that said, you can't outgive God. We've figured that out so that if everyone who hears our programs gives us $67, we'll have all the money we need and God will give it back to you five times over. And a crafty listener wrote back, I do believe you can't outgive God, so here's my deal. You send me $67 and I'll have all the money I need and then God will give it to you five times over. They never send them another card. It seems that money corrupts everything. I'm honestly very tired of that. I wish there was a place a group, a mission that existed in the world that wasn't driven by the love of money. Does that exist? Oh, friends, yes, it does. It's the gospel ministry of Jesus Christ played out in local churches all over the world. They're not sinless. They're not without without error. But this is the design of God. The gospel ministry reminds us that we could gain the whole world, but if at the end of our lives we lose our souls to eternal destruction, then the temporary benefits of having the treasure here on earth would be reduced to nothing. But praise God that our souls can be safe because of the great love of Jesus. What Paul's describing here is exactly the same as what Zacchaeus experienced when he came to Christ. Those who truly experience the saving grace of Christ, they give They give. And they give generously. The text describes giving as a grace, the grace of God that was given to the Macedonians who then begged for the favor, the grace of taking part in grace giving. Upon their example, the Corinthians were instructed to complete the grace of God in their lives But it all is and was and always will be the grace of Christ because you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that by his poverty you might become rich. God's people give joyfully according to what they have. I hope we'll all be God's people. I woke up this morning and I wish I had taken a whole different sermon outline honestly at 6.30 this morning. And I didn't. I'm not that good. But I wish my two points were this. I worked them in here in application. What does a grace-filled life look like? If grace-filled lives come from generous hearts, then the two obvious questions are, what's a grace-filled life look like? And how do I get a generous heart? I wish those were my two main points. What does a grace-filled life look like? Joy and affliction. Generosity from poverty. Begging for the favor of helping others. What a beautiful thing to be free from the love of money, from the cares of the world. That sounds so good to me. How do you get a generous heart? 
which leads to a grace-filled life. How do you get a generous heart? I want that. If that's the key, come to the gospel and keep coming to the gospel. Only the truth of the generosity of Jesus can motivate us to be generous Christians. Be filled with the fullness of God's grace through Jesus Christ, and only he can make your heart generous. I'll invite the praise team back to the platform for a song of transition, and during that song, our deacons can uh, prepare themselves for the Lord's Supper. We'll do that here right now. We will... Think about the gospel, the generosity of God on our behalf. Paul's final thought here. I have three paragraphs left, so I'm, I'm almost done. He closes his comments about these anonymous messengers of the grace-giving Macedonian churches and says to them in verse 24, So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. Corinthians, prove it. Give. Show that you have not received the grace of God in vain. This was a life and death matter to Paul. He'd gone to great trouble to make sure that the Corinthians would not miss this truth. He demonstrated his own integrity, the integrity of the process in completing this offering. He wanted to prove the validity of their faith, help an impoverished church, demonstrate the gospel, and declare the glory of Jesus to the church and the world. And for the same reasons, what we do with our money is of huge importance now and in the world to come. It will show whether or not salvation, Zacchaeus, has come to our house or not, which demonstrates whether we are children of God. When the Corinthians did generously give, it demonstrated that the impossible had happened as the wealthy Corinthians also walked through the eye of the needle. Because as Jesus said to the apostles, what is impossible with man is absolutely possible with God. Father, put your word deep in our hearts and let it grow in Jesus' name. Amen.